Good morning, everyone. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10 and hold your finger there and uh, slide your other finger in one of your other fingers into Ezekiel 34. I will be going there in uh, just a little bit. John 10, Ezekiel 34. Father, thank you for this, this time. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, Father, for, for edifying us through it and uh, making us more like Jesus each day. Uh, we pray that uh, we would. We would be transformed uh, by the renewing of our mind, that we might prove what is that good and perfect will of God. We might walk in it, uh, that we might uh, be transformed and then also be transformative as we, as we go about in the world and as we love neighbors as ourselves we just pray father you would be with us today as we as we study your word and we just pray that you have your way in our own in our hearts and in our lives pray this thing in jesus name so as we move on within the text from chapter 9 to chapter 10 uh and this this is true for for any text but we must pay attention to the shifts that occur or uh, in our case today, the lack thereof. Uh, so oftentimes within within biblical narratives, when, when they're like they're telling a story, so narratives basically are, are stories, um, and our Gospels are essentially large stories told from one perspective or another. And often within these, we'll get, we'll get a shift from one scene uh, to another. They will often shift along the contours of the current chapter divisions. So the current chapter divisions, of course, were not there, but the those who put them in did a good job, typically, of, of organizing it and dividing along these, these, these shifts in the scene. Uh, so we we often oftentimes we will simply jump into a passage and we'll start at the beginning of a chapter without any any reference backwards or or reference forwards. And we should be careful not to do that. So we're tempted in this case to read our current passage, John 10, 1 through 10, as an independent section, or at least the whole chapter, uh, chapter 10, as an independent section detached from chapter 9. But that would be a mistake. Uh, while it's true that the subject matter seems to change at the beginning of chapter 10, that doesn't mean that there's a change in the underlying story. Uh, there's uh, there's still an underlying story going on here, and if we if we look at at the relationship between chapter nine and chapter ten, we'll actually get a, a clue to the meaning of of this first part of, of John chapter ten. Uh, to recall how chapter eight transitioned into chapter nine, we saw there that there was a scene change. Jesus had departed the temple after nearly being stoned to death. And he, it says, going on his way, saw a man born blind. So there's a transition away from the temple scene to this next scene, which is the man born blind. In our current passage, no change occurs. No scene change occurs. He's still talking to uh, and partly about the formerly blind man and some Pharisees that had joined into the conversation. And 10, 1 and following then are a the continuation of a conversation that Jesus is having 
Uh, and, and though uh, the parable he tells us is about sh- uh, shepherds and sheep, he's still talking in some sense about the blindness of those who think they see, but who are actually blind, and those who are blind, but who truly see. Our current section assumes the prior conversation and moves into a discussion about who the legitimate leaders are, the true shepherds, drawing on various scriptural texts to do so. We're going to see how this works as we as we move along. Uh, so we'll start in, in chapter 9, 40, 41, and then into 10, so that you see the, the way that there is, there's practically no transition. There's a shift in kind of what he's saying and the topic uh, at hand, in a sense, but he, but it's still the same conversation that he was having at the end of, uh, at the end of chapter nine. <clears throat> so nine verse forty. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, "Are we blind also?" That's very important. He's he's still talking to them. They have asked the question, "Are we also blind?" Jesus said to them, "If you were blind, you would have no sin." But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. 10.1. Most assuredly, I say to you. So notice this is, it's just continuing, continuing the conversation uh, that he was having with these Pharisees. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold by the door, um, uh, but climbs up some other way, the, the same is a thief and a brigand. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, this parable, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and lestes. They're not robbers. Most of your your, uh, translations will say robbers. Uh, Not exactly. These are insurrectionists uh, who, on behalf of Israel, are rising up against Rome. Uh, But the sheep, so all that came before me are are thieves and, and, not say, brigands. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, or perhaps safe, as we'll see, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. 10, 1 through 5 is a parable of sorts, and the rest of the chapter is the application of the parable seen in three movements or applications. We will look today at the first application. First, what is this not about? It is not about me and my salvation, at least not directly. It is not about how one gets saved by the shepherd. The parable is about a shepherd entering the sheepfold, gaining access to the flock and the legitimacy of that shepherd who gains access. The legitimacy of the shepherd who enters or seeks to enter is determined by how the shepherd comes into the sheepfold. It is not about sheep entering the sheepfold, but about the legitimacy of the shepherd 
who does enter into it and how he shepherds the sheep. It rests on certain assumptions developed and taken from Israel's scriptures. First, the leaders are seen as shepherds and the people of Israel are the sheep. This is obvious enough, but we will see some of those. Uh, this means, first and foremost, that the people he is addressing are considered to be Israel's shepherds in some form or another. This is the main connection with the end of chapter 9. Let me read that again. So the, the people he is addressing, the Pharisees, are considered to be Israel's shepherds in some form or another. And this is the connection between chapter 10 and the end of chapter 9. The Pharisees who joined in the conversation at the end of nine saw themselves as the protectors of the people, but Jesus is challenging their legitimacy. Sure, there's a king of the Jews at the time, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, though at this time he wasn't even being called king of the Jews. King was never in his official title. But Jesus is not addressing him. He is addressing the de facto rulers of the Jews the self-appointed arbiters of truth for the people. We know they thought of themselves this way because they deem it their responsibility in league with the chief priest to put Jesus to death to prevent him from leading the people astray. Recall how they shamed the officers and those who were believing in Jesus, Nicodemus included, who was one of them, uh, when the officers and some like Nicodemus wanted to give Jesus a hearing. John 7, 45 through 49. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers said, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know, that does not know the law is accursed. They believe they are there to prevent the people from being misled. And perhaps they were, but John later indicates that this concern had little to do with legitimate truth finding and more to do with keeping their power and position over the people when he reveals their discussion about killing Jesus and letting him live. John eleven forty eight. if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Here, when, we, when he says everyone will believe, when they say everyone will believe in him, what is he talking about? He is talking about following him. So to believe in someone is not simply to assent to who he is, so that, that's important. It is to get in, get in league with him and follow what he says. So they're concerned that he's going to steal them away, that he is going to steal them away from their influence and the, then Rome is going to come and take their place, which is the temple, and their nation. Whatever their motivation, Jesus tells this parable against them, even though they aren't under, able to understand it. John 10, 1 through 6. This is the parable. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a brigand, an insurrectionist. Some translations will say robber, as I mentioned, but it is a bit misleading. These are people who wanted to overthrow the Roman government, and they used, uh, they used the scriptures often as a, as a justification for doing just that. 
But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will follow no, they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this parable, John tells us, that they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. As we read this type of parable, we immediately begin to map the people, and in this case, the sheep and the shepherd, into the uh, into real life or onto real life. We begin to ask questions like. Who is this one who enters by the door, uh, doesn't enter by the door, but climbs up some other way? Later, he's called a stranger. Who or what is this door or this gate? Who is the doorkeeper? Who are the sheep? And this is quite normal, and it is what we should do. It's what we have to do to interpret a parable. As I mentioned before, there were self-appointed leaders of the Jews, which included the Pharisees but which will also include later on and and has already included the chief priest who had joined in from time to time against Jesus. Israel's former history had consisted of many who had taken up the battle against the enemy, the nations, the Greeks, and the Romans, and Jesus is challenging their legitimacy as true shepherds. And the way he does it is through this parable. By using the language that he does in the parable, he evokes imagery from Israel's past from her scriptures in order to describe himself as the legitimate king or shepherd. As the current de facto rulers, the Pharisees in this instance are the shepherds who climb up some other way. This kind of imagery, this this imagery evokes images of Israel's leaders as shepherds, modeled on that of David, the king after God's own heart. Modeled on David as a shepherd, which then becomes a metaphor by which every king and leader is judged. All the leaders are then described as shepherds, some good, but some wicked, leading the people astray into idolatry, whether clearly visible idolatry or invisible idolatry of covenantal nationalism. The prophet had used the term shepherd to describe Israel's future king, the son of David. He would be the real shepherd, the new David, and he would shepherd his people. In a passage we've looked at several times, and one that describes what it would look like when the Lord returns to his temple, the prophet says, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work is before him. Isaiah 40, 11, sorry. He will, he will feed his flock like a sheep, like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his, with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. We should note that within Isaiah 40 through 55, with this particular passage at the beginning of it, the prophet develops the idea that God himself is going to return, and he is going to return through one who is called an arm, the arm of the Lord. The idea of God's arm ruling for him is an allusion to God bringing Israel out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. It is this arm that will bring Israel out of exile. The arm of the Lord is then merged in the book of Isaiah in 40 through 55, merged with the final servant song in Isaiah 53, where the arm of the Lord is revealed, and yet no one believes the report about him. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
the prophet asks. The arm of the Lord occurs here and occurs in the Pentateuch seven times, but it's a favorite phrase from the book of Deuteronomy where it occurs six out of those seven times. In Exodus 6, 6, we read, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue, from the, rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Deuteronomy 4, 34, or did God ever try and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. Isaiah's point in describing the coming of God with a strong hand and, and his arm ruling for him is that God will bring about a new exodus. This description in chapter 40, verse 11, heads up that larger section of 40 through 55, and it defines what this coming to Zion and this new exodus will look like. What is added to this description of the arm of the Lord ruling for him in Isaiah 40, 11, is that the arm, and this is the important part for our, for our purposes today, the arm of the Lord will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs and he will gently lead them. God's arm will be a shepherd. And then, if we wanted to explore this more, when we look at Isaiah 52, 12 through 53, we will see a description of what God's returning to shepherd his flock will look like. As the arm of the Lord, he will give his life a ransom for the sheep. As the new David, Isaiah 55, 3 through 4, he will become leader and commander of the nations returning us to the shepherd theme, which we saw at the beginning of chapter 40. So this is one place where the future leader of Israel and the nations is described as a shepherd. The fuller shepherd, shepherd passage, the most lengthy description of Israel's leaders as shepherds is in Ezekiel 34. And this is likely what Jesus is alluding to in this passage. There, Ezekiel is told to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. I think that's in verse one. They are, these shepherds are the shepherds that feed themselves, but not the flock. They do not care for the flock, but they allow them to be scattered. They have no real shepherd, 34 verse five. They don't seek the flock, but leave them wandering. Either they eat them or the wild animals do, likely referring to the nations being allowed to come in and do harm to the people. But what will the Lord do? 34 verse nine and verses nine and following. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my flock at the end. Cause them to cease feeding the sheep and the shepherds will feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths that they may no longer be food for them. What does this mean? What's he going to do? For thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel in the valleys and in, the, in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the mountains of Israel. 
There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what is what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. God himself in Ezekiel, and we might add also in Isaiah, is going to come and seek his sheep and shepherd them. This also means, as we'll see in what follows, that he will punish those who were illegitimate shepherds. He will save the sheep from the hands of those shepherds who simply want to steal, kill, and destroy the sheep. Listen as he continues, verse 17 in Ezekiel 34. And as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Remember chapter 9 where in, in John where Jesus says, uh, for judgment, he says, I have come into this world that those who, who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. Throughout the book of John, we've been seeing how he talks about judgment. He is coming to judge. What's he doing? He's sorting. He's sifting. He's figuring out uh, who and, and calling those who are truly sheep and those who are not. He's judging between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture and to have drunk the clear waters that you may that you must foul the residue with, with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep. Because you have pushed, pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save, mark that word, I will save my flock and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. How's he going to do this? I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant, David. Now, David had been long gone by now. Right. So this is Ezekiel. Ezekiel is living during the exile. Uh, after 586 B.C., David lived in the 900s. Okay, So David's long gone. But he says, this is how I'm going to uh, establish my shepherd. I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant, David. You can see the same theme in Isaiah 55 as well. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my, my servant, David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant with, of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land. And they will dwell safely. There's that word again. They'll be saved in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill of blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season. And there, uh, there shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield her increase. What's happening here? This is the... the becoming fruitful of the land. This is nothing less than new creation, right? So in the old creation, once Adam was driven away, driven out of the garden, what happens? Thorns and thistles come up. What's going to happen when he is brought back in? The land is going to yield its fruit. He's, he inherits a, a fruitless land. What's going to happen when the Lord returns Israel? He's going to make the, the land fruitful. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hands who enslaved them, of those who enslaved them. 
verse 28, and they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. If we're listening for the echoes here, we'll hear them loud and clear. First, we should note that the dynamics within the Ezekiel passage are as follows. There are shepherds who aren't shepherding. If they were, Jesus implies, they would listen to him, the true shepherd. This is his point. They would listen to the true shepherd, the true David. They are illegitimate. While claiming to protect them, they don't feed them and they open them up to the wild animals. This David would never do. Recall how he fought with a bear and a lion for the sake of the sheep, 1 Samuel 17, 36. This then becomes a metaphor for how he would shepherd Israel and defeat her enemies. Jesus, as he says with Goliath, right? He, he pulls this image up and says, look, I fought with my bare hands, a, a bear and a, and a lion. Can I not defeat this uncircumcised Philistine? Right? It becomes a metaphor then for the way that he takes care of his people. Jesus has clearly been reading his Bible. And he is, under, he is undermining the Pharisees' claims to legitimate leadership by evoking the scriptures and placing himself squarely in the middle of them as their fulfillment. He is the new David. And in our parable, he is claiming to be the means by which the shepherds of Israel were to get access to the flock, to actually shepherd them. This is kind of the role that's not expected. He is the arbiter between the sheep and their shepherds of the judge who is sorting things out, judging between sheep and sheep. And he is putting his own shepherds in place, as we'll see within the rest of the book of John, because he is the gate, the door, by which entrance to the flock is gained or prevented. He will appoint shepherds to feed his flock. Yes, Jesus is the good shepherd, as we will see later in the chapter, but he is also the one through whom other would-be shepherds gain access to the flock. To shepherd them. This is the main point of the parable. In this way, he will save them. That is, he will keep them safe from the false shepherds. This is not simply some abstract salvation. It is a genuine protection from the false shepherds. He has come to save his flock from the false shepherds, and that is what he intends to do. And that is what he is claiming to do in this passage and beyond. It's not quite what we would expect. And this is usually why verses 7 through 9 are skipped over, or at least uh, not explained adequately. Then Jesus said to them, again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and brigands, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Read, be kept safe, and will go in and out and find pasture. His role, Jesus's role, is direct in relation to his disciples. He is their shepherd, but it will become indirect later on in the gospel through his disciples. Remember what happens at the end of John, how Peter receives his mission. What is his mission and how is it defined? Jesus says to him, do you love me, Peter? And what does he say? If you do, feed my sheep, right? Feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep. 
feed my sheep, he says three times. There he is making good on what is said here in chapter 10. He is appointing shepherds to shepherd the flock. Peter is entering through the door to a place of leadership characterized in terms of shepherding. The flock needs nourishment and protection. Do it like I've been doing with you, he seems to be saying. And what does that look like? It looks like this, as he will say in this chapter, laying one's life down for the sheep. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The Father sent me, so I send you, that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Like David, fighting the lions and the bears with his life on the line. Practically, it looks like putting on the armor of God, to use another metaphor, and engaging in the battle for the mind directing our flocks to keep their focus on Jesus and the things that concern him, the things that really matter. These things required of us don't expire when we have trouble, they intensify. When needs arise, our obligations uh, are, are, are risen. We have to learn to think, to orient ourselves to the person, person of Jesus through the spirit in the truth of the word of God. And that means taking on that seemingly upside down ministry of the servant of the Lord, because that's what Jesus himself took on. Second Corinthians 6, 3 and following. I've read this before. It's a, it's a favorite. Giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, right? It doesn't say as, um, as uh, kings, no, lording it over them, no, as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions and hardships and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live. As punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Here Paul lays out what it means to shepherd the flock. But John has laid it out clearly as well, but in a different form, what the shepherd ministry, ministry will look like. In the next passage, which Pastor Ryan will be looking at next week, it serves as a model, a paradigm for every would-be pastor. Aim for it if God is calling you to ministry. It's the servant life, sacrificial life. God help us to live that. What about that last verse, though, in verses 1 through 10? The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to, to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. It's a favorite of, of so many, but what does it mean in light of what we have seen in the previous context and in Ezekiel and in Isaiah? Who is the thief in this context? Is it the devil? Perhaps in some way, this is how it's often interpreted, but in the context, who is the thief? He's the one who's attempting to get into the sheepfold in a way other than through the door. And in the larger context, it is these Pharisees, the self-appointed gatekeepers of Israel. They are the thief, and they have come to steal from Jesus's flock. 
They have come to kill the good shepherd and his disciples and to destroy the very work of God in Jesus. We can see what this, what we can see that this is what they were doing or attempting to do with the man born blind. They had thrust him out of the community, out of the synagogue, destroying the life of the man and those who were related to him. This is death in that world in a very real sense. To be put out of the community, out of the synagogue, is to be exiled, and that is considered death. The good shepherd has come to give life, an abundant life, resurrection life in the present, and that included membership in the community and inclusion within the community of God's people. God is making all things new in Jesus in anticipation of the resurrection. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant, David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. In the meantime, those who are shepherds, what should we do? How does that manifest itself? Does it manifest itself only here or in our homes? It seems to manifest itself in our homes. We are, we're all pastors in some sense. We're all shepherds, which is where the very word pastor comes from. We should ensure that we have and are entering into the flock and shepherding them through the door. And that our ministry, wherever it is, is modeled on what we see in Jesus, as John, as John has described it here, as a meek, yet not weak servant, willing to lay down his life for those whom he loves, under the true shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. 